Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm a bank. I don't (laughs) want to do this podcast anymore. (laughs) And this is The Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured or trash piece of cinema or bankrupt piece of cinema. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. No, look, I would like to make note on this podcast Mm. for in full view of the world that I am now a financial institution um, and I need my depositors uh, credited for the full amount of their deposit in this bank. And by depositors, I mean the people who gave me money for student loans. (laughs) Oh, ooh, hmm, it's interesting. I guess when you put it like that, that we are able to bail out depositors Mm -hmm. in that particular way the, the president is able to make that decision. And yet we have a case before, what, the Supreme, the Supreme Court? Court yeah. <sighs> About his in, student loan forgiveness program. Right. In which they're just going to decide that it's not fair. Oh, it's an abuse of executive power to not have people pay back money to a government that can print money. It's yeah. not fair that I had to pay my loans to Harvard Law School. Right. Yeah. I feel like we need, like, so... The problem with the Supreme Court is that they're just very insulated and largely just like old white men Mm -hmm. uh, and or at least have the brain of old white men. Amy Coney Barrett just implanted right into their brain, into their heads. And so, like, they don't have the perspective of someone who doesn't have money. We should we should it should be the case that, like, five of the people who are justices on the Supreme Court need to be broke. (laughs) I need them to just be poor. Yeah. Or you know what? I'm, and this is this is my philosophy, actually, for the world. I need every single adult, every single adult, if you are going to go out and eat at a restaurant, you have to have worked at a restaurant. And I think that yeah. this would solve a lot of problems, including the Supreme Court, because if Clarence Thomas had to go work as a server in a Chili's, for instance. He'd be dead. So. <laughs> in order to pay his rent yeah. for a month. Yeah. Well, yes, he would be dead, which... You know, also fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, whatever. But like, if every single person who decides that they like, you need to have a license. You have a yeah. license to eat at a restaurant, and the license you obtain your license by having worked in a restaurant. Right. That solves a lot of problems. Yes, I think that's that. You know what? I'm fair. It's fair. Yeah. But no, no government uh, entity, at least at large, at least mm. in this democracy, has decided that they need to bail out the financially insecure people who work at restaurants. No. Rather, they want to bail out the financially insecure banks. Right. So moving on to that topic, (laughs) we will today be talking about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank that as of, I believe it was last Friday now, it's about uh, 13 days ago as we record this podcast. So call it 15 days ago when you're listening to this. Mm -hmm. It had a spectacular and disastrous collapse uh, over the course of about two days. Like a weekend. Yeah. I recall you asking me on a Sunday after the weekend, after we had had maybe guests and like all these other things happening yeah. um, at our house, if I had heard about anything about this. Yeah. And n- no, I had not. Right. And by the time I got caught up on it from podcasts and news, uh, the, the bank was gone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it had dissolved into the atmosphere, much like a superhero after Thanos snaps his fingers. Yeah. For this for this episode, I'll be taking the news uh-huh. um, to talk a little bit about what Silicon Valley Bank was, uh, what what it still kind of is as a uh, an entity at this point, and then why did it collapse? 
I want to talk to a little bit about like what were the main factors that led to this? Mm -hmm. Should we be worried about any other banks? All that kind of good stuff. Uh, and then, or should we be worried about Silicon Valley? I don't. Uh, I mean, yeah, but not for this reason. Tech, tech bubble, the sequel. No, yeah, maybe it's I hard don't know. to say. We'll get to it. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> what we're pairing that with the sort of classic. What is it? 2015. When did this movie come out? Late December yeah. 2015. Yeah. So uh, the 2015 film, The Big Short, which describes our last financial collapse <laughs> in in this country. That's right. Uh, Non-pandemic related, you know, uh, asterisks, non-pandemic related financial collapse. The last once in a lifetime disaster that we experienced as young adults. Yes. And so, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, one of the three that we've gone through in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. What were know, the three? Yeah, so there was the dot-com burst, right. there was the housing crisis, right. and then there was the pandemic. Although the dot-com burst was not while we were adults so much. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess I was technically 18, right. 19. So, I mean, in this range of, you know, of our lifetimes. Right, like, right, right. I certainly didn't have stock in pets.com, if that's what, you know, <laughs> if that's the question. <laughs> but but I, I, I remember the commercials for pets.com. Mm -hmm. And so I remember a lot of the companies that failed to exist anymore after tw uh, 2001. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so we decided that we were going to obviously do some kind of a financial movie. There are not that many, if you can imagine, there are yeah. not that many movies out there uh, around the banking industry. And the big ones, other than this one, really just talk about like, finance and all of the all they're, of the like debauchery yeah. on Wall Street. There is, you know, there are some strippers in the big short, yeah. but it's not about a bunch of dudes just doing terrible things on Wall Street. It's right. really about the actual industry. And yeah. they come up with all sorts of interesting ways to make it about the technical aspects yeah. of the industry that we'll get into when we talk about the film. And that's the thing. I think the um, the Big Short does a really good job of explaining to people what caused the financial collapse um, right. and and doing so in a way that was like engaging and interesting, but also like- Educational. It, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it's like a training video you watch at work, but it's like the best possible version of that. <laughs> yes, Margot Robbie, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, right. And I think that the thing that we also, uh, this is me not knowing a whole ton again about the SVB stuff, but the other reason that we thought that it was good was because both the news story and the housing bubble burst in 2007 were centered around this idea of lack of regulation, yep. deregulation, maybe bailing out banks, depending on your definition of bailout. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so it, history is not repeating itself, but, but rhyming. Sure. Yeah, right? there you go. Now, you mentioned not knowing a lot about SVB. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into the news and we'll fix that. All right, let's do it. Rather than jump off with a lead from a news story, I am going to go through a series of questions that should help illuminate our conversation a little bit by the time we get to the movie. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the first question is, what is Silicon Valley Bank? <laughs> is that a question that you had? Um, I can try and answer. Uh, you can try and answer if you want. Yeah, go for it. Um, so it's a okay. The bank in Silicon Valley. Hey, got it. <laughs> Now, my understanding is that it is a bank 
that is not, I mean, it's obviously it's not a bank that is, um, it's not national, right? Correct. It's not yeah. like Chase. It is what you would call a regional bank. Mm. That is right. So for instance, in North Carolina, we have like five, a uh, fifth thirds bank or whatever. There are a bunch of banks around here that I have not seen yeah. anywhere else. There used to be a lot more of these regional banks. Yeah. It used to be First Union. There was like the original, like Wachovia back in the day. Uh, yeah, there, I had Wachovia. Yeah, there was... Um, uh, BB and T was a big one around this area. Mm -hmm. And all of these banks ended up getting like bought, merged or consolidated with other banks. And so we've seen, you know, banks that are now maybe a bit bigger than they should be. <laughs> right. There are like four banks. Well, yeah. So there are more, but the, there are, there are the major banks mm -hmm. that you're talking about. So Bank of America, um, Chase, you've mm -hmm. got those, um, you have the major investment banks, your Goldman Sachs, your Morgan Stanley's, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But Silicon Valley bank was not one of those, right? Mm -hmm. They handled three major, uh, types of banking. First okay. is retail banking, right? You got a paycheck, put your paycheck in your bank account. You take it out to pay for groceries. Simple. Retail okay. bank. Uh, they also managed loans. This could be anything from mortgage to loans for startups. And then they, they did have an investment bank arm. And that is the area that got them into trouble, which we'll talk about shortly. Okay. This is an interesting note. They had over $200 billion in assets when okay. they failed. Okay. Okay. Right. So to compare that to like, I think like JP Morgan is like 1.5 trillion or something like that. If I remember correctly, uh -huh. I could be wrong, but you know, I don't need to tell the truth about them. Fuck them. Uh, <laughs> the, but, but so it's a lot of money, right? $200 billion in assets to fail is kind of crazy. Um, but at the time they also had fewer than two dozen branches. Okay. What that means is they, they were actually by, uh, by assets, they are the second largest bank ever to fail in the United States. What was the first largest? I don't know. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> I could have looked that up, but you know, we have, uh, I mean, I had never heard of Silicon Valley bank. So yeah. it, even if it were like twice as large, it's possible. I still would not have heard of whatever bank it was that. Yeah. Failed. So the largest one was in 2008 oh, okay. re related to our topic for to oh. or our movie for today. It is Washington Mutual. Oh, wa I, Wamu, yep. I had a Washington Mutual account. <laughs> I loved my Washington Mutual account. And do you know why? Oh, no. Because I never had to pay any fees. Oh, that sure. was like part of the whole thing. Sure. They're like, you never have to pay any fees. And, and, and then come to find out you should maybe charge people <laughs> fees because no, it, then your bank won't succeed. They 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 failed for the the loan crisis. Oh and well, I thought that they got sucked up by Chase though. They got they did they got bought. It wasn't was it Chase? It was whoever, it was Chase because I have Chase now. <laughs> yeah okay yeah it was um I think J P Morgan Chase is run by a guy by the name of Jamie Dimon and I think he was the one who was Jamie Dimon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and and is the other person that runs it like. James Moneybags. Um, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Moneybags and Jamie Diamond. They they decided that uh, they want they they would make the purchase of the failed Washington Mutual Bank. Uh, they they also had been pitched by I think the government to purchase Silicon Valley Bank, and they're like, we don't want to do that again. That was a so, bad idea. So okay, so the bank failed, but yeah. then it got purchased and bought up by yeah. a larger Another bank. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, which can can be you know useful. I mean, you get those clients and those customers and the, the books on their balance sheet, but it's also some of those assets are worthless, right? Not me. Yeah, there you, there you go. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, the the bank itself catered to a certain crowd of predominantly startups, venture capitalists, and tech firms. Mm -hmm. And the way they did that was with the products that they offered. So unlike other banks, it will help early employees secure personal loans to like buy a house. Other banks weren't going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So think about it this way. If you're a startup 
and you are just getting off the ground, you may have a product, you may have a go-to-market strategy if you're lucky, um, but you don't have revenue, right, right. <laughs> especially not profits, right? And Silicon Valley Bank was one of the few banks that didn't require collateral for a loan necessarily, or at least not uh, physical collateral, like you know, we're going to take your car, (laughs) they would take an investment share in the companies that they were, you know, loaning to or supporting Uh in exchange for, you know, uh, that, that loan that they were giving out or that early stage, you know, capital. Okay. Right. Uh, they would also, you know, again, work with individuals who, who are immigrants, right. To the United States. Okay. Right. Because we've seen a lot of success from these people in doing this job. They would help create cash flow for people who had no cash and didn't have much in the way of assets so that they could get their business off the ground. But I I was of the impression that yeah. people who are starting some kind of a startup or whatever get angel investors or mm-hmm. then they have multiple rounds of funding, yep. right? And and so how does this work into that? How does this work into that scheme? Are they, they, are they considered angel investors? Are they considered a round of funding? No, they can be considered a round of funding. It's typically considered a loan. Loans, like if you were to go bankrupt, loans have to be paid back first before any investor receives any profit. So they felt like they were actually in, they're in primary position. Okay. And so they actually felt like it was less risky, right? And because they can end up making a lot of money on the investment into those companies that they stake, right, as a percentage of the company, mm-hmm. they're willing to take that risk as, as the bank. So that was where they started out. Um, it is, it seems, you know, as though it was incredibly successful at a time when Silicon Valley itself, though the area was being incredibly successful, lots of startups, lots of growth, lots of money, lots of venture capital flowing in. Right. Right. And so the bank itself claimed to, uh, to bank nearly half of all U S venture backed startups as of 2021, half that is... of every venture backed startup in the United States worked with Silicon Valley bank. That is, uh, that's wild. Well, I mean, I guess you have the branding also just in the name. And that's a, another huge part of it. So they spent a ton of money at every industry event, sponsorships, you know, uh, parties, all that kind of stuff, getting people to be aware of the bank and what they could provide for the startup industry. Right. Yeah. Tech bro financial institution. I mean, that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it is It is from the show Silicon Valley. They just throw a bank on the end of them over <laughs> there. Right. Um, this leads to our second question. Mm. What happened? Like, why did a bank that was this large collapse, not like over the course of several months, in two days? Right. Like, what happened? Okay. The first issue is that they said, well, fine, we're just going to invest in 10-year T-bills or treasury bonds. Now, what that means is that you you know pay the government a certain amount of money, $1,000, and in 10 years, they pay back $1,000 plus the interest on that bond. Mm-hmm. Now, what have interest rates been in, until very recently? Incredibly low. Historically low. And now they are much higher. Exactly. So what happens if you bought a bond three years ago with very low interest rates, but now you can buy a bond at, what, 7% interest or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. The value of those original bonds you bought three years ago diminishes, Right. It's it's worth considerably less because interest rates are so high now. Okay. I don't 100% know how bonds work. Yeah. So I'm going to trust you on that. Okay. This is also why I'm happy that you took this part of this, yeah. uh, <laughs> Mr. Masters in Business, because sure. uh, I, I just, I you know, yeah. it's bonds and, and whatever is just not something that is super duper yeah. in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So, so check this out, right? Say I have a bond mm-hmm. that has a 1% yield. That's three years old, right? Okay. I could sell you my bond. Okay. And then in seven years from now, 
you'll get the value of that mature bond, which is whatever I paid for it plus the one percent. Okay. Right. Would you rather do that, mm-hmm. or would you would you rather buy a bond from a bank that can give you a ten year bond but with a seven percent yield? Sure, you have to wait three more years, but the yield is so much higher. You're making a bunch more money off of those bonds, mm-hmm. right? And the answer is, you definitely are going to buy the one from right. the, from the government. And so, the, for so your bond now mm-hmm. is worth nothing. Mm-hmm. You're not even able to really uh, sell it for like stability purposes, right? Right, right? People may be trying to hedge another bet or something. Right. And so you're just holding on to that bond for 10 years until so it matures. So you're telling me we should be buying bonds right now. I mean, we can, yeah. But I'm not giving financial <laughs> advice on this podcast, everybody. It's, I'm not licensed or registered as a financial advisor. Please stay out of my mentions. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but what that means is that in the search for yield, mm-hmm. in the search for return on investment for their stockholders, they said the best place we can put our money right now is in 10-year bonds. And so they put a bunch of their money mm-hmm. in 10-year bonds that they could not get out. Hmm. Okay, step number one. Step number two, as I mentioned, uh-huh. this bank uh, was the bank for nearly half of all U.S.-backed venture startups as of 2021. Right. They are incredibly concentrated in one industry. Now, you mentioned the, the phrase tech bros. Yeah. What is the connotation of that? They are all very what? Douchey? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, insular. Oh, okay. It, it, is, a, it is an echo chamber. Right? I was like, they all, there's a lot of adjectives yes. I could be using. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, but they're all, they all talk to each other. Right, and they right. all communicate in the same circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all ha- follow each other on Twitter. They are insufferable because they are so insulated. They, it's, it's also why Silicon Valley is having problems right now in product market fit. Like, they just can't, they don't understand what people want to use, right? Right. They are very much the... The idea of the coastal elites, yeah, right, that, that don't really understand everyday folks. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they don't, they're not solving any problem that anyone really has anymore. They did for a while, right, uh, and have s- ceased doing so. Uh, and so that was that's another issue which I'll bring up in a, in a second. What, uh, what what is the issue that the concentration around one industry or one small insulated group of people? Okay. So all of your money, a lot of your money is coming from the same groups of venture capitalists. So there's a lack of diversity lack in of their, diversity. the bank's portfolio. It, I mean, hey, <laughs> there you go. That's right. Uh, and then what happened was we had a very hot period of venture capital investment into startups mm-hmm. in 2021, early 2022. Okay. So startups were flush with cash. Right. Right. And they started putting their money into the bank. They put their money into the bank, put their money into the bank. Great. Bank's having a great time. And the you, it was easy to raise new rounds. It was easy to raise capital. But what happens when the venture capital money dries up? Now money's not so hot. Now the startups, in order to make payroll, in order to invest in marketing or whatever it is they're going to be doing, have to draw money out of the bank. Mm-hmm. They're no longer putting money in the bank, mm-hmm. right? And so they start to draw money out in order to pay stuff down and the bank, like I said, had taken their money and done what with it? Tied it up. Locked it up in 10-year bonds. It seems like maybe taking your money and making it not liquid is uh, like a significant portion of your money. And, That's it. It's and not, how much, right? Right. Yeah. Making it not liquid is a not very bright thing to do heading into a potential recession. I guess they uh, yes. couldn't have known. I don't know. It seems well, like we've been heading into a potential recession for the past three years. So. Right. 
Right. So uh, the other thing they did that was a, a contributing factor to this that I'll talk about in more detail in a second right. is they were just terrible at communicating what was happening to the market and to their customers. Right. Well, OK, so we also recently did an episode in the 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 late later part of last year about all of the layoffs in the tech industry. Yep. And I, I remember reading about how all of these tech industries are laying people off because they don't have capital because interest rates have been rising so much. That's right. Yep. Feels like that's probably playing a role in this as well. That is exactly right. Interest rates going up, especially going, going up as quickly as they have, mm-hmm. have put a real crunch on things like borrowing and especially on people needing to get money out where they thought they had cash, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, we're going to spend our cash rather than borrow for the future. And so what we've seen is those interest rates have also, have made their bonds worth less, but have also made people need cash more. Okay. It's a really uncomfortable position to be in if you're a bank uh, <laughs> with a bunch of money in bonds and less cash than you should have on hand, right? Right. Um, it's also something that we can talk about in terms of the the requirements for capital on hand that were implemented by Dodd-Frank after mm-hmm. the financial collapse of 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get there in a little bit. Okay. Uh, so anyway, number four was bad comms. They did a really bad job communicating what it is that they were doing and why they were trying to raise liquidity. And then number five, a good old fashioned bank run. Yes, yeah. I did hear about this, but definitely tell me more about it. Because... <laughs> sure. Yeah. So <laughs> again, I've been off of Twitter. So I feel like this is a conversation that happened very much on Twitter and for my own mental well being and productivity, I check into Twitter like once every two weeks at this point. Yep. Yep. So here is the basic run of events as it happened. So I did the setup for you. Here's how it played out in real time. So on Wednesday, March the 8th, Silicon Valley Bank said it would undertake a $2.25 billion share sell, selling shares to the market in order to raise $2.25 billion after it sold $21 billion of its securities from its portfolio at a loss. So it sold securities from its portfolio at a loss of about $2 billion. So it was trying to then raise back a little more than that $2 billion from issuing stock to the market, right? That is on uh, Wednesday. And so they they started selling on Wednesday or they just announced that they would be selling in the future? They said, and they announced it. They said they would undertake it. It takes you have to file with the FEC. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I'm like, ooh, imagine if you... (laughs) Imagine if you bought shares on Thursday. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. And Sorry, so, but keep going. It, yeah. So speaking of Thursday, the markets were maybe understandably spooked. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the share price of the bank plunged on Thursday. Now, all in all, that can happen and a, and a company can come back from it. A bank can come back from it. I think it was like First Republic Bank saw their shares tank, but they're still around, like still doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what happened on Friday was that close knit group in the industry, mm-hmm. including people like Peter Thiel, literally the worst human to ever exist. I thought it was Peter Thiel. Peter the douchebag. Yeah. I mean, and, this guy sucks. Yes. Yeah. And some other venture capitalists, including... Uh, Union Square Ventures reportedly started to tell the companies that they had invested in that they needed to pull their money out of the bank while they could. Ugh. Now, there are some funny interviews of these people who were interviewed by, you know, uh, economist journalists and, uh, you know, financial journalists saying like, oh, well, we don't think it's going to fail, but we're getting our money out anyway. We're getting our money out before it does, <sighs> just in case. 
which of course is the thing that causes them to fail. These are basically just the townspeople yes. running up to the bank and telling what's his name? Yeah, yeah, from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. From It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. telling telling him that they want to take all of their money out, and and like they literally are fine. Yeah. And so the bank, from that point, suffered a sudden and swift collapse, completely crashed on Friday, so much so that that weekend, the government was trying to negotiate a sale. Um, eventually, by Sunday, uh, the, the federal government uh, said it would step in and make sure all of the bank's depositors would have access to their funds. Uh-huh. Keep in mind, he says, in depositors, right? Right, right. So if you had your paychecks going into SVB, or if you were a company that kept your payroll in there, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. you're fine. Right. If you're an investor in the company, mm-hmm. you're boned. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So here's a question then that I have for you. What about the whole thing? Like, I thought the whole point of all of the bank runs that were happening in the early part of the of the 20th century was that at the end of it, we had FDIC mm-hmm. insurance. Yeah. And isn't it like it is so that people don't run the banks yeah. because they say that like, hey, your money is insured. Yeah. You're fine. Yeah. It, even if this bank collapses or whatever you will be okay because the government is is here to make sure that yeah yeah. yep and that is correct right Mm -hmm. now the problem with that from this perspective yes is consider the the market that um silicon valley bank is tailored to okay they're actually doing retail banking for organizations or for high wealth individuals or Mm -hmm. what have you and so those companies have more than the fdic insured two hundred fifty thousand dollars in that bank they probably have what is the what is the limit? It's two hundred fifty thousand. Two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars feels very low. <laughs> well, it's it is intended. As, yeah, it is in, considering inflation. Sorry. It was intended to prevent bank runs from massive numbers of people mm-hmm. in, in you know retail banks, right? Mm-hmm. So it, the it's a wonderful life is a good example, right? If right. everybody in that you know building knew the money they had to pay for their groceries wasn't going anywhere, even if the bank failed. Right. Fine. They're not going to make a run on the bank. Right. Right. Um, And so you can protect a lot of retail banks by doing that. You can't really protect, uh, you know, a bank that is tied to a specific industry so tightly. Right. And in which the people in that industry are worried about losing millions, not a couple hundred thousand. Right. So, right. I mean, well, yeah. So 250,000 sounds incredibly low, just considering like, you know, the, the, the cost of houses yeah. now, you know, yeah. and just how much things cost for everyday, even for like an ind- everyday individual. I wonder when the $250,000 limit was put into place. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I do wonder if it gets tracked with inflation. Seems like probably not. So good, good call. During the 2008 financial crisis, the insurance limit temporarily increased from $100,000 to $250,000 per depositor. Okay. Um, that ended up sticking. Oh, okay. So, so, so it was Dodd-Frank. Uh, it was, I don't know if it was the Dodd-Frank exactly. It was era. the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act. That was a temporary raise. And then when it became permanent, I, I do not know. It feels like maybe we shouldn't tie the amount that we insure people's money <laughs> to just um, financial collapses. Yes, maybe, that's probably right. Maybe we should have some kind of um, regular check-in on how much, like what's considered a reasonable amount yeah. that people don't flip out. So, so it's also like, are you insuring individuals or are you insuring companies? Right. Yeah. So. I mean, well, right. And, and so that's also the, like, that's also a question then is how much of the bank, cause you said they have like an arm that, that deals with the, yeah. with the tech 
um, industry, how much of their business then was around the tech industry versus retail banking? Yeah, I mean, it was it was predominant. Like I said, they only they had less than twenty four actual like locations, mm-hmm. so most of it was dealing with companies and dealing with uh, VCs. It was mm-hmm. less about dealing with individuals for the retail side. Mm-hmm. So that's why when people were coming to pull money out, they were pulling it out on, on behalf of companies and organizations, not individuals. So there were very few people who probably would have been covered you know, fully by the $250,000. Getting back to that, the, the money would come from the fees that all banks pay into the FDIC, which is the deposit insurance fund. It's exactly for this case, right? We talked about the limit. They are kind of ignoring the limit for this, you know, this point. Right. Um, but the money is coming from that fund. Um, it doesn't actually matter if it does come from that fund or not. This is a little bit of <laughs> a little lesson in uh, modern monetary theory, mm-hmm. which is to say that the federal government can push a button and print money, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if that money is being destroyed by a bank. Um, then the government's not actually creating any inflationary pressure from the money because the money just disappeared. Right. <laughs> um, now, the other thing to note is the money isn't gone. <laughs> those, right. those treasuries that they purchased still exist, right? right? And they still exist on the balance sheet of Silicon Valley Bank. So anyone who buys the bank is getting a ton of 10-year treasury bonds that were bought a couple years ago. Gotcha. I did just look it up because I was curious yeah. about like what the percentage was for, for SVB that was not insured. Yeah. Would you like to take a guess of their like, I guess. Uh, I mean like 85% or something. Yeah, it was yeah. like 85. I mean, that's just like, that's that's wild. Yeah, it's huge. But it's, it's also not typical, right? Because uh, again, if they are, as you mentioned before, responsible for half of mm-hmm. the tech startups in 2021, yep. then then they are an atypical case. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. And so, you know, what we see now as sort of an outcome of all of this, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank's vice chair of supervision is now leading a review of Silicon Valley Bank and trying to decipher exactly what happened and what regulations could be put in place to prevent it from happening in the future. Right. Hopefully there's some good common sense legislation that comes out of this. I know Elizabeth Warren has been working on some stuff that she's I think always working on some stuff. Sure is. And, and I think it could be useful to, to do a revision of Dodd-Frank on behalf of, you know, the these kinds of collapses. Huh. So I guess the question then is, what has happened since then? Since a week ago? Yeah. Oh. Because uh, haven't there been other banks that have also are now like in trouble? There's a bunch of banks that are currently like teetering, right? And so like what's Biden doing, I guess, to sort of well, help so, this? So they backstopped the the depositors for Silicon Valley Bank and for Signature, okay. indicating that if there were any more bank failures, they would support those companies as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he's come out and said it you know, directly, but the implication is there, mm-hmm. which has steadied the market. The market has said, okay, we're actually not that scared anymore, even though these banks do seem to be on the edge. Uh, those you know, First Republic, PacWest, Western Alliance. Um, there's no run on those banks. First of all, those banks are slightly more diversified, so it's not just one industry talking to each other. And secondly, um, they, those uh, depositors now think, well, okay, even if it does collapse, I'll still get my money from the FDIC. Right. So I don't need to run and pull everything out right now. I, I think that I've also just heard people talking about how this is a bank bail. I've, I've seen people be very angry. Sure. Um, be for, you know, without much explanation about how this is a, these are bank bailouts and it feels like it's not a bank bailout. It feels like, well, only because of what you said earlier about how, um, the people who are getting money 
are like businesses. Yeah. Right. It, and not, um, not the, like the bank. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a bailout in maybe the technical sense, which is we've designed a system <laughs> right. called the FDIC to bail people out if there's, if they get into trouble, right? Right. And in this case, they've gotten into trouble with the banking of right. the thing. But and so therefore, bailing out, yeah. But they're not bailing out the bank. Like Silicon Valley Bank will exist in name only until it is purchased, right? Um, it's not going to be a thing anymore. And they're certainly not saying like, oh, you had liquidity issues. Here's a bunch of taxpayer money, right? Right. All the money that they're using to backstop comes from the FDIC. Um, and in any sense that this is a bailout, it's it's like for the people who are the the... the Retail bankers and mm-hmm. the companies, it's not for the investors, right? Mm-hmm. No no investor in Silicon Valley Bank is getting bailed out and saying, oh, you made a bad bet on this bank. Well, here's your money back. Right. Well, so I guess that's that's what I mean, right? It's not the same. So it, people are saying bank bailout, and it's just, it's just the same as like with Obama and la, 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 right? But it, with the, the bailouts that happened in 2007 or yeah. 2008 yeah. or nine or whatever, when, when those happened, it was like executives at these institutions yeah. just took those bailouts and gave themselves giant bonuses. That yes, and yeah. they the people who worked for the bank, the high enough up, continued to work for the bank. Yeah, and got a big payday. Right on the dime of the American people. That that is correct. Um, now the one there are a couple things to note about the bailout of two thousand and nine. Um, what happened was. These banks did not have enough money on their balance sheets, mm-hmm. enough liquidity mm-hmm. to make good on those, you know, on those uh, debt obligations when they failed. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have these mortgage backed uh, securities. Mm-hmm. They failed. And so you owe people money. They didn't have the money to pay them. Mm-hmm. That's why Bear Stearns died. That's why Lehman Brothers died. Mm-hmm. Once that started to happen, the federal government stepped in and said, we're going to give you money to pay out the to keep the bank alive, mm-hmm. basically. So. The on the other side of that is that was a loan from the federal government, right. right? So all of the banks that took that loan money were under severe and strict requirements mm-hmm. uh, for reporting and for you know capital on hand and all this kind of stuff, and they had to pay it back with interest, and they did, right? Mm-hmm. So don't get me wrong, really terrible that the people who are responsible for the financial collapse in the highest halls of power in banking got away with it and got paid handsomely for their huge fucking mistake. Right. Absolutely criminal. Those right. people should be in fucking jail. Uh, but in terms of the actual money right. used to save those banks, right. we got it back and we got interest on it. So okay. I'm not that mad about the spend. I'm mad about the criminality. <laughs> right, 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 right. I think I'm in, and I, again, I don't have enough information to have yeah. strong opinions. Sure. Um, other than, yeah, people probably should. Neither do I, but I have them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I guess I'm just saying like, this is what I have. I have seen people with strong yeah. opinions and this feels different. They, they have strong opinions and they're comparing them as being the same. And yeah. this feels different to me than that insofar as the people who are getting helped, right, are, are like Etsy. You know, sure, yeah. or or whatever. It's, yeah. it's like these these tech companies yeah. and, that have people on their payrolls. Yeah. And the the I think part of the backlash actually comes not from any kind of functional amount of money spent or what the money is spent for. Right. It is that right now we are in a time where people largely despise tech companies. But that being said, uh, we do have historical perspective on all this stuff. If you want to know about a real bailout that we just discussed. 
Let's talk about the 2007-2008 financial collapse with the help of The Big Short. Yeah. So let's talk about The Big Short. Uh, This was a 2015 release late in 2015. Mm -hmm. December 13th was one of the dates that was given. And then I think like a a week later was maybe like the wide release of the film. Yeah. Limited release to get buzz and then wide release after. Yeah. So this was uh, a film by uh, partially written or co-written by Adam McKay and directed by Adam McKay. Yes, and of, uh, of Talladega Nights fame. I was going to say, I didn't really know anything about him as a director, only because I just, you know, I don't really necessarily pay attention. And uh, as I was going through his his list on IMDb, I was like, oh, oh, Forrest knows this person yes. very well. <laughs> Anchorman, IMDb, or, or, Anchorman, uh, Ricky Bobby, uh, Step Brothers, like, yeah, all of those classic comedies. Yes. Um, he, so yeah, so he, he started, um, with TV. Uh, he actually, his very first thing that he, that he had is on his IMDb was a director of digital shorts for Saturday Night Live oh, sure. in 2000, 2001. Yep, yep. Um, in 2004, he directed Anchorman, um, in 2006, uh, Talladega Nights and then Step Brothers in 2008, Anchorman 2 in 2013. He has other things on his list, but these are the big ones. The Other Guys in 2010, uh, The Big Short mm-hmm. in 2015. Which, and, and well, I, I like this movie, like this is definitely his turn towards like, I'm going to try and do the comedy slash incisive, like criticism sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, that has worked less successfully. Right. Well, he did Vice in 2018 Not and well then Don't Look Up in 2021. And that was a piece of shit. But it, yeah. Well, I mean, so you didn't like. No. Okay. Interesting. I really loved this film. I think when it came out, I Big really, short? yeah, yeah I really too. enjoyed this film quite a bit and uh, rewatching it holds up. It definitely holds up. I yeah. think. I think the 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 movie, like like I said, is a very good uh, like dramatization of here's how the financial collapse happened. It's like something you would watch. It's the best version of something you'd watch in school to explain complicated subjects easily. Um, there is no real narrative to the film, or no like um, <laughs> character that has a plot that follows them through a structure or series of events that result in a catharsis. Like they try and shoehorn a little something in with Steve Carell's character, but like that's about it. Right. I mean, so this is a a movie that was uh, the the screenplay um, is based off of a book that was published in 2010, Mm -hmm. which was uh, similarly titled The Big Short colon Inside the Doomsday Machine. Yep, Michael Lewis. Mm -hmm. And it was um, it was I mean, I, I almost did read the book, but I just didn't have time. I I considered very much reading the book, but I I was like, if you want it. Ooh. Okay, well, maybe I will then. Yeah. I was just, I was going to listen to it on tape. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's short. Like, even if you read it, it's like six hours. So it's, oh, it's, okay. it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's the, I mean, my understanding is that the book also does try to make something that is kind of heady, yeah. which is finance. Yeah. Uh, and the collapse of a, of, of a very complicated system. Yeah. Uh, interesting and accessible by, presenting narratives around the people that were directly involved with yes. it. And, and I'll give you an example of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to explain like triple A, double A, A, triple B, double B, B rated bonds. Right. Each of those fall into what's called a tranche. Right. I remember using that word around our good friend, Michael Eads. And he was like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? What is a tranche? That's a ridiculous word. And so, yes, they actually explain it with, with Jenga pieces in the movie, which is helpful. 
They do, yeah, they do a very good job, I think, um, of taking complicated ideas and and making them access, uh, accessible or uh, explaining them. I think that some areas they do a better job than others yes. for me personally yes. throughout the film. Um, but but before we get into that, the we're not going to go step by step through the plot of the film because, as you mentioned before, there's not really much of a plot. Yeah. But what we have instead is we are following three groups of people yes. slash investors. It started out in the 70s with mm-hmm. the guy who invented the mortgage-backed security. Right. Uh, and it looks like he just kept the costumes from Anchorman and just like threw on <laughs> these people. So, anyway, all right. That's, that's Ron Burgundy talks about tranches. Yes. So we do follow three groups of investors and 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 it's really just each of them discovering in their own time that something terrible is on the horizon them making the decision to to invest or bet against the institutions uh that are going to be failing and them waiting and fighting off all of the people and investors that are telling them that they are wrong and have made a mistake while the world is slow motion collapsing around them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is basically what happens with each with each of the three groups. Yes. So the three groups, then the first one that we're introduced to is going to be Scion Capital and Michael Burry, who mm-hmm. is an actual person. Yep. And the name is the name of the actual person. And he's played by Christian Bale. Yeah. And the second person that or group of people that were introduced to is front point partners and so uh that's going to be michael baum in mm-hmm. the film uh in real life his name is steve eisman and in the film michael baum is played by steve carell yep. and he uh becomes the, the other person in his circle is greg lipman who is played by ryan gosling um uh, who's a trader at deutsche bank Am I saying that right? Yep, you are. All right. It is a, a very terrible bank. They're they're really one of the worst out there. Yeah, I mean, which is saying a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, our third group of people uh, is is Cornwall Capital, um, which in the movie is changed to Brownfield Capital, and it is uh, Jamie Shipley and Charlie Geller who uh, meet up with a guy who is played by Brad Pitt. Yeah, he is uh, Ben Rickert. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and and so you have the varying degrees of of what they are investing in mm-hmm. throughout the film. So with uh, with Christian Bale, he is the person who initially sees this on the horizon, yeah. right? And he is the one that we start the film out with. He is a a very unconventional, untraditional dude in the in as far as the investment banking world goes. Yep. Um, he's a former physician. Actually, because mm, okay. they say that he's a doctor, and I thought it was like a PhD, but right. he was actually a medical doctor, oh. and he gave that up to go and uh, invest. and And I think one of the things that they don't really talk about in the film that is true in real life is that he was independently wealthy before he hit it big from gotcha. the big short. Yeah, he yeah. had been investing for a while, and he had been seeing I think twenty five percent returns on his investments yeah. with his uh, with with, with the people. His money, that, yeah. that was why he had so many people who had like trusted him with their money. Right. Basically. And he actually had to start turning away people before this because he was so successful. Yeah. Um, because his philosophy was to uh, be able to go into markets and not influence them. Oh, sure. And so if he had too many people if that too he much was money, it investing, then it was yeah. influencing the market. Yeah, exactly. 
So yeah, it, it talks about Michael Burry, who's the first one who basically identifies that there is a problem yeah. with all of these different, um, with all of these different mortgage bonds. Right. And he is the one who, I guess, goes to the banks and uh, is the first one to have them create this product yeah. of him being able to essentially short sell or take mm-hmm. out insurance a on- credit default swap. Yes, him. with these big banks. Yeah, and so- you know, the movie explains all of these terms more than than we will. <laughs> right. We're definitely so, not going to get into it. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea of a, a CDO or a synthetic CDO, as they describe here, mm-hmm. is ridiculous to me. What they're saying is, you know, you can make a bet on the mortgage market or whatever. Mortgages are going to go up. Mortgages are going to go down. Right. But the idea that they can repackage y- your bet into a you know, debt obligation, basically a, a package that then someone else can bet on. Right. And someone else can bet on. And there is a part in the movie where this guy is very smug, sitting at his table, describing all this stuff to Steve Carell's character. Um, and he's like, oh, how how much money is in all of these synthetic CDOs that are betting on other CDOs that are betting on other CDOs that are betting on uh, the, the mortgage market? Right. And he was like, well, for maybe, I think he said it was like 20X. So if you had $10 million, then it's like $200 million of money were being spent on the $10 million of mortgage-backed securities or whatever it was. Yeah, right. So I mean, it's, it's yeah. wild because it it truly is. I think around this same time, you had Bernie Madoff mm-hmm. going down for his Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And I don't really know how these like synthetic CDOs are any different than a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. Uh, you know, the way that I think about this and and I think that they do a good job, but in my mind, I I came up with another analogy, um, because like I said, I think some of the analogies in this film work really well. And some of them are uh, actually maybe made it harder for me to understand or was a little bit distracting, but in my mind, it it sort of, it it seems like what you're doing is like, let's say I have a, a bunch of paint. Yeah. Right. And we'll say that red paint is, is garbage mortgages and blue paint is good mortgages, right? And so what if I have a bucket of paint and I have only 5% of that bucket of paint, 3% of that bucket of paint, um, I put red paint in and the other 97% of it is blue paint. You still have blue paint. Then you still have blue paint, right? And so you can then say, hey, I have this bucket of blue paint. Maybe some of it was red, but it's still basically blue. Yeah. And so it's still good. Yeah. Right. It's still safe um, for blue to count as blue. Yeah. Um, And and essentially what they're saying is that once you get past seven percent of your paint being red. Yeah. Mixed in there, it's no longer blue. It's no longer good. Right. Right. It's no longer what you're selling it for. And what they're saying then is that it's not just seven percent like in these in these securities, mm-hmm. it's like 70% red, That's right. yeah. 80% red. And they're still calling it blue. And they're still calling it blue when the whole bucket is 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 actually like a burgundy. Yeah. Ron that's right. Burgundy. Hey. <laughs> uh, but no, but it's it's basically saying like, hey, we're telling you that this is blue when it's actually like 80% red. Yeah. And and maybe a little bit of it is like a slightly purple, but it's yeah. basically just a bucket of red paint. Yeah. And then not only is that the case, right. but when someone when someone goes and looks at the underlying elements of the paint, mm-hmm. they take it out and say, oh, there seems to be a lot of red in this paint. Right. Uh, they're like, yeah, there is a, you know, a lot of red in the paint, but the paint is still blue. 
Right. Like they're literally saying the same things at the same time because at a point in the movie you're seeing mm-hmm. uh, defaults on mortgages go up, right? Mm-hmm. They quadrupled in like, you know, one quarter or something like that. Right. Um, and then, but there's the mortgage-backed securities are still holding their value, right? Right. There's no decline in the value of the mortgage-backed security, which is what you need for a short, right? You need right. To, the, the value to go down. And they're like, how is this possible? The underlying asset is failing, but you're still taking these mortgage-backed securities and saying that they're worth the same as they would if they were AAA rated. Like, right. how is that possible? And, and I think in my mind, right, I'm thinking of, again, if we're using the pain analogy, that we have, uh, you know, we have these these buckets of paint that yeah. we are, the label on the outside, right? Yeah, the label yeah, on yeah. the outside says it's blue, uh, Home Depot or whatever. Yeah. They slapped a label. They said it's blue. You know on the inside that it's actually basically red or purple, yeah. right? And then they take the all of these other, they take like 30 of these buckets of of paint and they mix them all together and they say, look, it's blue. And if we mix all the blue together, you definitely still have blue. Right. And it's like, yeah, but every one of these blue buckets is actually red inside. It's right. actually purple inside. That's right. Okay. So that's my analogy that good in my mind, yeah. I think makes sense. Um, when we're talking about those synthetic CDOs or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. And, and yeah. And then you have people who are peeking inside the can and they're saying like, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's garbage. It's, 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 it's red. It's not blue. They're actually looking at like the values of the numbers inside. Like I'm looking at the paint and I'm telling you right now that that's not what it is. And people are like, nah, the the label says it's blue, man. The, in the movie. Yeah. The, you know, Michael Burry's character is the one who's like, go look at what's inside of all of these mortgage-backed securities. Look at every mortgage in there and we want to see what's going on. And the Mm -hmm. guy's like, that's like thousands of mortgage per, mortgages per security. And he's like, yep, that's right. And so he's the one who does it. And then starts to make these bets and goes around to all of the major investment banks and is asking for those credit fault swaps. Right. Um, and so uh, Ryan Gosling's character hears about that secondhand and then goes to investigate it himself and mm-hmm. does the math on his own. But he, he heard about it from Burry's like, like kind of crazy <laughs> tour of the banks. Right. And then he wrote a prospectus trying to take it to a bunch of other places to buy credit fault swaps or whatever he was doing. And left a prospectus on a table, and that's when the cornfield or whatever they were, brown, brownfield, yeah. uh, found that. And so that's how we got the connection point between these three, you know, very separate groups. And right. I don't think that's how it happened in the book. But Yeah, I mean, I guess in the in the film, Ryan Gosling's character is at a bar, and he overhears somebody talking about how they're doing these yeah. uh, these default swaps for, yeah. for mortgage securities. And he's like, what? Because it's so unheard of. And yeah. so he, it piques his interest. Now, there is a point in the in the film where Steve Carell's character um, is a front point or whatever. They're in their offices, and they get a phone call that's wrong number. That's right. Yeah. And that wrong number just starts talking about what's happening and they're like what and that's how they catch wind of it um and adam mckay says it's really frustrating because people are going to think it's bad writing (laughs) but this actually happened and they had to say multiple times in the film no this actually happened the the uh financial institutions literally collapsed while steve carell's character was on stage speaking the entire room the life drained out of the entire room during his left. speech, yeah. and they all left. That actually happened. It's not bad right. over dramatization, yeah. um, and and it's uh, you know it's something that he said multiple times. And it's definitely it's also in the book. It's in right. Michael Lewis's book. And what I think is really interesting is like if you ever find yourself with like Michael Lewis just like hanging out in your offices, mm-hmm. stuff's about to go down because right. like not only this, he was like in the uh, in Wall Street in the eighties. 
where he wrote Liar's Poker. And like, mm-hmm. there was a, a collapse that happened. I think maybe it was Savings Alone or something like that. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he was also... The tech bubble burst. The tech bubble burst. Yeah. And then he also wrote the book um, that he's, he's writing a book now on uh, FTX and like the Sam Bankman fried stuff. Like he was just like hanging out in their offices when all of a sudden like everything exploded <laughs> and he got hauled up to jail. And like Michael Lewis is like, well, guess I got my book now. <laughs> it's like, so if you see him walking around, like run, find right, a new job. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. He, so he was in the interview that I, I think I told you that you probably want to go check out and it's in my show notes, but yeah. it is um, like a, just a, a round table with him and McKay. And then a couple of people that uh, starred in the film, um, Christian Bale, Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling. And uh, it's, it's a great interview and um, definitely goes into it. Now we talked about the different analogies that they used and I love a good analogy. Sure. And I do really enjoy the way that they tried to explain these things. Um, One of the questions you asked me before we got into this was how did they, what was the strategy Right. These are very complicated. They're intended to keep people in the dark. So Mm -hmm. how do they start to communicate these things? Right. And and obviously when you're watching the film, there are different ways that they do that, right? They have Margot Robbie in a bathtub explaining things. Um, They have the analogy of the Jenga tower. He just happens to have Jenga in his office, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) He set it up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then they also had Anthony Bourdain, who was talking about Stu, and I think they had Selena Gomez talking about Black Jack. Yeah, yep. And um, R.I.P. Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. I really liked the the stew analogy. Yeah, I think that, that one was good. That was a good one. The Jenga analogy, I think, also um, yep. I did like. The thing with Margot Robbie in a bathtub was actually distracting for me. Okay. Because I was like, oh, hey, there's <laughs> it's just Margot Robbie in a, back- sure. in a bathtub. And there's maybe no visual assistance there. There's no visual. It's I mean, the visual is just, it's like this beautiful woman with a beautiful vista. Right. You know, behind her. It, yeah, the visual is not explaining the thing. It's, it's like, just you, her saying. You have to saying, listen to her. Yeah. yeah, it's just her saying words in uh, an accent that is Australian, which I didn't even know she had an accent that's Australian. So that's also distracting. Um, so for me, that wasn't. That was that didn't really hit, and the sure. Selena Gomez one uh, on second watching, uh-huh. I think, made more sense to me. But when I first saw it, I, my eyes still sort of glazed over because of all the lights from the blackjack tables. Right. It's also like you, like Richard Thaler, is uh, can, can write a book, I guess, but mm-hmm. like to have him like try and be a screen presence, like I don't know about that. <laughs> Jeff could have done better. Right. Right. Uh, but I think that they did a lo- they did do a good job of showing rather than telling mm-hmm. how bad things were in South Florida and how bad yeah. things were in the housing market. Because yeah. I think that's another way that they do show or they do explain how bad things are basically is just going to South Florida. I don't imagine that those people actually, do you think they actually went to South Florida in the book? Did they actually just go to Miami and look yeah. at these neighborhoods? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, I, I'm not like, obviously they, uh, like they knock on the door and a guy's like renting and like his daughter is there and they were talking about like, Oh, you got to talk to your uh, landlord cause he's delinquent on his mortgage or whatever. Like that's all dramatized. I, I don't know if they actually spoke to anyone there, but they certainly did do the tour of like the houses to see how many vacancies there were, mm-hmm. um, how many you know, people were past due, all that stuff. Yeah. So the, the interview that I watched, and again, I recommend you going and watching it because it's a great discussion. Mm-hmm. They they very much do get into this question. The question that you asked me was, how did they translate a very complicated banking jargon 
into mm-hmm. something that people could not only understand, but something that had a compelling narrative. Yeah. One of the things that McKay talks about is how he thinks that the book is actually very funny. It makes, it makes him laugh and that there is just this energy and excitement to the story, especially in the first half where the three groups of people are, are basically like card counters. Right. And, and they're trying to beat Trying to beat the house. The house, yeah. which is Wall Street or which is the banks, yeah. right? And so, of course, you're rooting for them because people hate banks yep. and they hate casinos. So that's how you make it compelling is through these narratives of people who you hopefully like right. or that you buy into. Yeah. And so if you like these people, then you'll be more engaged in trying to understand what is happening to them. Sure, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he did talk about how... Um, they also were trying to come up with ways to make it more interesting because it's dry, yeah, you know, and it's and it it can be something that people don't really want to hear about. And so he was basically saying, you know, uh, here's a quote. We kept talking about why doesn't our mainstream culture tell us about this stuff? Why aren't we learn what? Why aren't we learning about it on the news? Why aren't we learning about it through documentaries? Why isn't it discussed in debates? And what are we hearing about instead? And so it was basically a commentary to have these pop culture figures mm-hmm. uh, tell this information. Be- it was a commentary on what people are actually interested in. Right. And hopefully capitalizing on that. They yeah. originally were going to have Morgan Freeman just narrate the entire movie. Oh, no. I mean, like, <laughs> I love him, but like, he's already got like a very staid and, and like, uh, austere voice. Yeah. It's not exactly going to keep you awake. <laughs> well, they, so they, they were, they were just coming up with ways that they could have it be interesting right. and, and have it be engaging. And so they were tossed around the idea of Morgan Freeman, uh, narrating the film. And then at some point being like, and I can tell you're getting bored with me now. So here's Tom Brady to narrate the second half of the film. Gotcha, gotcha. And so it's just, what are ways that we can engage Make people goofy, through yeah. pop culture yeah. and through the things that they are, basically already interested in. Yeah. The the thing that I think uh they also do well yeah. is with the the Mike Baum character mm-hmm. um or Mark Baum, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Steve Carell. Uh like he is the the voice for like the people who lived through the crisis mm-hmm. and they just want to yell and scream and like be angry at everyone. Like he does that. And so right. when he's on screen you're actually like more compelled, I believe, to like, because he's so aghast at like all of the bullshit that's happening. Right. And so, he, and because of that, he's also incredibly curious. He's like, explain this to me more. No, tell me. And this, if this happens, then this happens. And so like, you get a lot of exposition from him, but it's also a little bit of like moral outrage. Right. So like you can ride along with that a little easier than like Christian Bale's character. Who's like mostly silent until he just like, plays drums. <laughs> right. And he's like, I want to see you a spreadsheet. And then yeah. On. I mean, he may not necessarily be the most relatable person and, and Bale plays him very, yeah. I mean, he, he, he gives, has his, his um, artistic license, but the actual Michael Burry in real life um, is also kind of a loner. Yeah. He's self-diagnosed with Asperger's in this uh, 60 minutes interview that I saw with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had, he actually has a glass eye and always felt like an outsider yeah. growing up because of that. And it was from a childhood illness. So those are all true things from life. Um, but but I, I think that he would even say like, he's kind of an outsider and he's yeah. not the person that is that is gonna make you wanna follow him. Totally. So yeah, I think to your point, um, the 
Steve Carell character is is very very relatable. Yeah. In in their rage, maybe just for us. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's very possible. <laughs> Um, and, and then, you know, according to McKay during this interview, he said that what was important for being able to translate this book into a script was that, I mean, first of all, that, oh, sorry, not McKay. Um, Lewis said this, that, that McKay felt comfortable taking the reins Mm -hmm. and completely breaking it apart and rebuilding it back up Sure, because a book is just not a movie, which is the philosophy that I have. I wish every person had that was trying to turn a book into a movie yeah. is you can't just do it page by page, scene by scene, sure. whatever. That's yeah. why some screenwriters are lazy. <laughs> I mean, they are. Yeah. And there are some fandoms that really just want to see Harry yeah. Potter scene for scene yeah. from the book That's right. on yep. screen, but it, it makes for a pretty terrible movie experience. Yeah. You know, um, also we're not reading Harry Potter anymore. Everybody we're done. Right. Or twilight or whichever, you know, know, I know. but, but you, you can't, there are just some things that you can't just translate word for word and especially a book like this. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that answers your totally, question. Very, very much so. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is a film that again, we're not going to get into in terms of trying to explain what it is, but yeah. I, I think that they do a really great job for the most part of making it accessible yeah. to people. Yeah. Um, obviously the end of the movie, um, it, there is the tension that they try to build up with the, whether or not they're going to lose all of their money if these institutions collapse. I'm pretty sure that's one of the few things that was maybe not necessarily true, but they, they tried to, make it more engaging. Yeah. Um, which th- they so would have still they get gotten, out in time. Yeah. Or, they would have gotten out on time. Yeah. Uh, they would have, uh, even if they collapsed, they would have still gotten their money. Okay. Um, and so that wasn't something that was actually, um, that was actually going to be happening. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, they, so they, they get their money and, um, and the, the nation collapses and it's not really like a rejoice thing, but no, because no. of yeah. all of the, terrible stuff that happens right because of it i mean what seven million people lost their jobs and millions of people lost their homes yeah Yeah. i mean as a person from florida yeah and was living in florida at the time and had both parents in the uh, in the real estate industry it was a it was a very 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 hard time yeah uh for a lot of people that i knew Mm -hmm. um but uh but yeah so that is that's basically the end of it and then at the very end we find out that um, all of those executives got huge bonuses. Yep. N- only one schmuck went to jail. <laughs> yeah. Out of all of those people. Um, but I guess we got Dodd Frank out of it. Yeah, which then of course got <laughs> hacked away by Trump, and that's that hacking way, which right. it, uh, allowed the middle-sized or, or whatever-sized banks uh, to get out of some of that regulation is what led to the lack of capital on hand for banks like Silicon Valley. So basically so. the big short is a prequel to whatever they're going to make movie about Silicon yeah. Valley bank. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well now, so really quickly, do we want to talk about awards? Um, I think, yeah, only- I did ask. I was curious. I know it got nominated for best picture. I wasn't sure what else it got. Probably adapted screenplay and maybe an acting award for Bale? Yeah. Well, so in terms of the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Christian Bale, Best Adapted Screenplay, and then Best Film Editing. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay. Which is the one that makes the most sense to me. Like, you know, it's, I think at, at the time, like I am just full of rage and want, and I want justice. And so right. I was like, it should win best picture because the <laughs> fuck the banks. But like, that's not a, that's not a good take. Um, you know, so whatever. 
Well, so, you know, I was actually really curious about like what else happened that year. Sure. And it was a really big year. Yeah, it sure was. So that was, uh, that was Spotlight, right? That one that year? That was, but every, so the, like, I mean, this was, this was one of those years where I think every single best film nominee mm-hmm. was something that I would it, it, in a vacuum look at and say, yeah, that could win for best picture. There are some years where you look at the list and you say, uh, those are some kind of forgettable <laughs> films. And even the winner, <laughs> Green Book, maybe shouldn't be winning. Crash. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this was a year that was highly competitive and it not getting best picture makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I mean, from the list, my pick probably would have been Mad Max Fury Road, looking back at it. Um, I mean, Bridge of Spies is also a, a really good dad movie. And as a dad now, I, I appreciate it <laughs> right. more than maybe I did at the time. Right. The Martian is fun. Uh, the Revenant is stinky. The Room I will never watch again. Uh, and, and Brooklyn was cute. Yeah. But I mean, Leo won Best Actor for The Revenant. And it made it still ma- it, yeah, it still yeah, had yeah. a lot of and cultural impact. And Aritu won Best Director as well. So, yeah, that movie is uh, not good. I never saw it. Yeah. But there's just a lot of films that you just listed off, which, which I think are just heavily competitive, and it kind yeah. of makes sense. I was I was amazed that this didn't win, but then I looked at the list and I was like, okay, well, I guess that does kind of make sense. Yeah, the um, I mean, Spotlight is is fantastic. It's a really another really good dad movie. This is a dad right. movie year, yeah. gotta be honest. Yeah, um, man, the The Martian, mm-hmm. uh, Bridge of Spies, and Spotlight are like top top tier dad movies. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, with Inner too, like the Revenant is is what it is. Um, it's very like showy and trying to be like you know one shot camera, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But it's also like you can't understand what people in the movie are saying, and it's dark as shit, and you can't see anything. So it's like I so, kind of like to be able to hear and see the movies that I'm watching. So, so. two trends that continue well into the future yeah, because no I can't kidding. hear or see things in a lot of stuff these days. I, maybe a trend more with us than with the movies. <laughs> maybe but, yeah, sure. that just tells people that I'm old. Um, yeah. So uh, really quickly, I'll just run through um, the the budget on this was twenty eight million. Opening weekend, it got seven hundred and five thousand. Well, sure, the the limited release. The one, limited yeah. release, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. But then gross domestic was seventy point two million, yeah, and yeah. worldwide gross was one hundred and thirty three point four million. I'm so, surprised the worldwide gross was that low because yeah. you can put Brad Pitt's face on it, and it should sell around the world but maybe a uniquely u.s crisis is probably well i mean it was a world crisis but you know what i mean yeah I, I, yeah um yeah i don't know that he was like super front and center on it yeah i mean it was more christian bale ryan gosling steve carell yeah still um, big big names though and so you know yeah yeah absolutely and then for reviews and reception um metacritic it got 81 rotten tomatoes tomato meter was 89 percent, and the audience score was 88 percent. so okay. both critically line, yeah. and with audiences um acclaimed uh and a lot of the critics it's interesting because people liked it but it almost felt like begrudgingly like they were (sighs) upset that they had to think oh (laughs) um and then there was one you know a lot of the audience reviews basically had people saying like i really enjoyed it but i didn't really understand it sure yeah that's fair it's not a surprise yeah yeah. Like one guy said that he was like annoyed because it was effective, but also talks down to the audience. And I didn't feel like it talked down to the audience at all. I felt like it was trying to yeah. to explain things. Yeah. I think that if somebody feels like they're being talked down to from something like this, that maybe says more about them than it does about yeah. 
the yeah. actual film. Yeah, it's like like these are complicated topics. I did not really understand them until I read Michael Lewis's book. Right. And so it's like I don't. I mean, please talk down to me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you understand this, then then you have knowledge, yeah. and maybe you're going to have to talk down to me a yeah. little bit because I don't understand it. Yeah, and you know, whatever. I, I think it's fine. It's also weird to hear people say this talk down to me, but then also people were like walk out saying I did not understand it. <laughs> it's like this movie <laughs> thought I was stupid, and I am, and now I'm angry. <laughs> it's like, All right, right. Well. Yeah, I mean, these were these were. Different people, but the guy who said he felt talked down to is uh, somebody from the Boulder Weekly. And okay. he also, like, he loved All Quiet on the Western Front and hated Glass Onion and Creed Three. so. Ugh. Ugh. Just bad Just to takes. give you an idea of this guy, bad maybe he's just singularly whatever, but. Uh, he needs to stay All Quiet on the <laughs> critics' front. So, um, anyways, uh, what are your thoughts? Do you recommend? Yeah, yeah. I think that, like, um if you have any interest in this world, this is the best description area. Like reading Michael Lewis's book, watching this movie, it's the best description of the collapse and why it happened mm -hmm. that you will find. Um, that being said, like if you like characters in your story that evolve and change and grow over the course of a series of events, this is not for you. Like this isn't, there is no character development, nothing. It's, it's like, it's a good looking tutorial video on like uh, preparing for your history, American history class when you have to describe what happened in the great recession. Like, yeah, but it's, it's, but it's, it's fun. It's compelling. You don't get bored. Right. So that, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's, that's the caveat. It's like, you're not going to walk away being like, man, I can't believe that scene at the very end when Michael Baum was talking about his dead son who committed suicide, brother, brother, whatever dead brother who has committed suicide. Like I'm touched. Like they could have cut that scene and nobody would have given a damn. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think again, they're trying to make it compelling. They're trying to make it something that people are more related to. Yeah, and, I get it, but so. like that's not what this was. So, so right, but right. Uh, yeah, it's a good movie. Um, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, and same for me. Uh, I I recommend this to pretty much anybody. I think that it is something that is going to have cultural impact. It's something that I would rewatch. Yeah. It is something that pretty much anybody could watch and uh, and and get appropriately enraged yes. over yeah um and and you should be yeah enraged over it and guess what we still haven't done anything nope. obviously <laughs> so uh yeah. yeah go go watch it and um and, and be yeah. angry about banks yeah and because <laughs> i know he listens to this show uh adam mckay can you just <laughs> can you please just make some damn comedies again bro like i know you're big time now and you got all the HBO stuff and you got the big fancy Netflix movie and stuff. Just go make get get Will Ferrell, get John C. Riley, put those two guys together and make me another comedy. Just straight comedy. Please. You're very good at that. And this stuff is like getting on my nerves. So yeah, we know climate change is bad. You know what didn't help? The movie Don't Look Up. It did not do anything. So let's just let's make people laugh as we teeter towards the edge of oblivion thank you all right all right <laughs> and with that thank you everyone for listening please remember to rate review subscribe wherever you get your podcasts also i just published a new newsletter this week Yay. so please go to the crosscut.substack.com to read about trends in horror and in that newsletter uh i interview my friend and former classmate laura moss uh who has their first feature coming out this August. I cannot go see it. No. Because Laura described it to me one time and I passed out and hit my face on a bar and smashed my teeth. But, you know, you should go see it. 
Yes, they are a very good director. They've had some really great success in the past at um, as shorter films. And this yeah. is, is this their first uh, like major or full length? Um, first feature, yep. First feature. Um, I'm very excited to see it. And, uh, or maybe, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you, you go right <laughs> I in. I also have a hard time with horror, <laughs> yeah, but I'm very right. excited for them. Uh, and, and yes, Forrest did pass out and, and break his teeth on a bar. I got so, the pictures. <laughs> uh, compelling, compelling yeah. stuff. I should have put the pictures in the newsletter. Anyway, maybe next time. <laughs> I don't think Jesse has read either of our uh, Substack newsletters yet, so... Gonna go read them now. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, find us on uh, Twitter. We are at The Crosscut. Instagram, we are at The Crosscut Pod. And we will talk to you guys next week. Have a great, uh, have a great weekend. Yay! <laughs>